to Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Exposure is one of those things that a lot of people worry about when they first get into self-directed learning, because while they might be fully behind the idea of interest-led learning, of being self-motivated, they recognize that it's difficult for one person to know what they should be learning, and not even should be learning, but what they could be learning, what's out there. The realm of human knowledge is just way bigger than any one person can comprehend or understand on their own. And maybe there's something out there in that realm of knowledge that is really going to be engaging for a young person, but they never get exposed to it because they are focusing on what is in front of them, what they know, or what is really appealing and and obviously engaging like video games. And so we get concerned that if we let young people follow their own paths, that they're going to miss out on something really important. And that's why something like a regular school curriculum or a college liberal arts curriculum is important because it exposes us to all, you know, a little bit of everything out there. There's definitely value in that kind of exposure, and I think most of us recognize it. The question is, is it valuable to be exposed for so long and in such depth over such a, you know, crazy period of time, like 12 years of your life? Is that the amount of exposure that is really necessary to form a well-rounded human being? Uh, do you need to take an entire year of chemistry in high school? or an entire year of U.S. history, or, uh, you know, you get what I'm good, what, what tree I'm barking up here. Do we need that much exposure in order to find out what's around us and what we might possibly be interested in, in studying, or in working on in our careers? So I leave that question out there, and today we get into it with Michaela, who has started a really cool, very small at this moment, private independent school in Atlanta called the Life School. And we hear a lot about how the Life School operates. And, you know, this is not a a full-on unschooling school. This is not a self-directed learning center like North Star or a free school like Sudbury Valley. This is something that's more of a bridge between traditional school uh, and, you know, more unschooling. It is interest-led, but there's also involvement on the part of the educators who work there to help nudge young people into new areas and new directions that they might not yet have considered. And so Michaela is doing, she's walking the the tightrope of trying to nurture exposure while also not crushing independent motivation at the same time. So it's a fascinating topic and it goes way beyond the time that we have here in this episode, but this is a great start. All right. Here's Michaela. My guest today is Michaela Streeter, the founder and principal of the Life School in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Michaela. Thanks, Blake, for having me. Let's start with who you are and what the Life School is. Give me the background. Yeah, so I'm principal of the Life School a small progressive high school. So we focus on helping students discover and pursue what they're passionate passionate about. So students are able to have space every day to explore their interests and then also uh, explore things that are new to them. So we, we know that at 13 or 14 students have like a pretty solid idea 
of things that they're interested in or curious about, but that there's also a whole world out there that they haven't yet explored. And so we want them to be able to see those uh, new areas as well, meet new cultures and perspectives, and just continue to be exposed to new things as they continue to develop their personal academic and professional skills. And that fits right into our discussion topic today, which is exposure and how young people get exposed to new ideas, concepts, fields of knowledge, and how to how to facilitate exposure without sort of squashing the intrinsic motivation at the same time. But uh, before we dig into that, I'm curious what happened earlier in your life that led you to start a small progressive independent school? Uh, you know, not most people don't take that as their default career path. So I'd love to hear what led you there. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I went to public school K through 12, um, went to very traditional college. I studied computer science, MIT. Um, and so, you know, completely traditional all the way, but I think along the way, my parents did a really great job of, you know, encouraging us to be thoughtful and to be curious. And so we would watch documentaries together and talk about them. If we were out at a store, an event, something wasn't going well or wasn't organized to our liking, my mom would like encourage us to, well, how else would you do this? How would you think about this in a different way? You know, just always encouraging like camps and programs and museums that kept us exposed to more and more things and gave us space to like sit and read and write and do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's kind of like the mindset for me of learning that it's just always been this like a lifelong process that there's always more to learn, always more to think about and consider. And so I got to California after college studying, um, after studying computer science, worked as a software developer, but kind of missed that human connection. My family's really big in youth development. And so that piece of my life just wasn't there anymore. Like I had been in college and growing up, I was just like at a desk at a computer all day long working for an enterprise company that builds software for enterprise companies. So <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. so I wanted to do something where I was connecting with people. Um, and so I went to volunteer to school and it ended up being this really great place. I love the people. I love what they were working on. The kids were super motivated to learn and grow. And um, so started as a volunteer, but found out that I wasn't like super awkward as a tutor with kids, like the stereotypical MIT person that's like kind of nerdy and awkward. <laughs> no social skills whatsoever. It's like, why can't you do this <laughs> derivation immediately? What's your problem? Exactly. So it wasn't that bad. And I was like, oh, maybe I could be okay around kids and working with them. Because I always wanted to start a school, but I just imagined more like being like Oprah. And it's like making a lot of money in tech and then starting the school, but having other people being there with the kids day to day. But mm. then I saw myself, I was like, oh, this is it. This is actually really fun. I enjoy seeing them grow and working with them. And so it's like, I could actually be the person working with the students in the school. Mm. So I left tech and started working at this school to set up their engineering program, computer science program. Um, and then also worked in the dorms. I was like, it's not enough to be with kids all day. Why not be with them in the evenings too? I don't know. Um, but it actually ended up being a really pivotal uh, experience for me to be with kids uh, in a very, in an elective class where there isn't this pressure of like hitting standards and then being with them in the evening and seeing their life outside of the classroom. Uh, got to yeah. see, yeah, perspective yeah. of students' lives that most teachers don't see. Yeah, you got to see them when they were signing up for classes voluntarily. You got to see them in the evenings when they had these lives outside of the classroom. Uh, that's all the stuff that I really appreciate about working with young people also. So uh, 
very cool. So continue. You're working at the school, but when do you get the idea to start your own school? Yeah, so I think it was maybe a few years in where I started trying out different things with the computer science. Because I started teaching at the web and taught like learn this topic, practice it, learn this topic. But but there's a lot of competition for electives, right? You could be doing PE, you could be doing your homework, you could be doing a lot of other things instead of taking like AP computer science or something. And so I started just redesigning the class. So it was more around student interest. Well, like, what do you want to build? If you were able to make a game, what game would it be? And then teaching the concepts more from um, giving students a lot more choice and also connecting them with more professional communities of practice. So it's not just like you're writing code for me, you're writing code because it's going to be online or it's because you're going to be able to ask questions to other professionals about this, other people mm-hmm. who are writing code online. And that just really changed their experience. They feel so much more empowered to be able to say like some engineer halfway around the world thought my question mattered enough to answer, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Or, um, and so it was just a very different experience. They were much more engaged students for you know, I was like, I, instead of making tic-tac-toe, they were like, I'm, I want to make chess. And they will like push themselves to do that. And if they finish, they'd be like, well, now I want to, you know, to get half of it to be the computer playing and half of it to be the person playing. And they were just pushing themselves because they had this idea to make chess, not because I told them. Mm-hmm. And so that just opened my eyes to a whole new world of education. And then seeing them in the evenings, not having um, as much space for choice um, or and not as much space to connect what they were doing in their other classes. And not that I was like the best teacher or anything, but just that, you know, in uh, what we would have called like a quote unquote core class, you know, you have a set of things that you need to get through and they didn't have as much flexibility as an elective class. And so seeing kids like reading about something and it just feeling so disconnected from what they were doing or doing a set of exercises and being like, well, we were having this really great conversation and now about like something happening in your community or a great movie that you saw, this project that you want to work on, but you can't do any of those things or have any of those conversations because mm. you're out of college prep school and you have three hours of homework. Yeah, it's and not so part really of the curriculum. Exactly. Right. But it's like, but there's something happening or like this election is happening or, you know, there was a, a fight or a shooting or there, there was something happening that like intrigues you, that's pulling you. And but it, it wasn't designed in the curriculum whenever that curriculum was made, so it doesn't count. Um, and so I started thinking about like, well, what else could high school look like? Like this works, like these kids go to college, they, you know, are going and achieving this goal that they set out to meet. Are there other ways to uh, get students to have the option to go to college, whether or not they decide to go and to uh, feel like they're able to effectively participate as citizens and um, just have have a life that feels healthy um, and feels like it's successful for them. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I went to grad school. And what did you study in grad school? I studied education and just saw a lot of like other people who were working in different environments, um, different kind of learning environments, learning spaces, people who were in um, fabrication labs, so tech, really tech heavy spaces, people who were teaching adults and little kids and um after school programs and all these different things I was like oh wow there's like this whole world of all these different learning styles and ways of thinking about teaching and learning that I didn't know and the thing that was most intriguing was this class on formal and informal learning where they pointed out that there's so much learning that we do uh at church or on sports teams or um at the grocery store at museums like these other informal learning spaces where people opt into them 
uh, in a way that people don't always opt into learning mm-hmm. um, and more formal spaces. And so how do we bring those things that where learning is more intrinsic and, and self-driven into the formal, quote unquote, formal classroom space? And that's when you said, I got to start something and out popped the life school. It must have just been easy peasy. Just start a school and you're done, right? No hassle. Exactly. <laughs> no hassle whatsoever. Everyone was so excited, right? No. So I mean, just like starting any business. So figuring out like what exactly is the idea? High school is so high stakes. It's really hard. It's a really tough gamble for a lot of families to say like, I'm nervous about my kids going to college. It's really expensive. I want them to have a great future, you know, and all of this. And to say, like, I'm going to take a chance on you. Like, you seem cool as a person. You went to these schools that some people respect and, you know, like, ah, but, uh, you know, so do I really want to take that chance? Um, so really being able to flesh out answers to everyone's questions and having a plan for if my kid does want to go to college, how do they get there? If they want to figure out something else for their life, how do they do that and be successful? How are they doing the things that I know are like, a, quote, are officially school, right? So even if you're, you're now a non-traditional parent, right? You probably went to traditional school. And so that's what you know, that's what you're comfortable with. So as much as, you know, a lot of parents wanna say like, I want this non-traditional thing for my kid, especially when it comes to high school, parents are like, but that's what I know. So basically what mm-hmm. I do is I give them your book, Blake. And I'm like, Read this <laughs> no stuff. way, which one, which one? <laughs> yeah. College without high school. There's like one All copy right. left on Amazon. <laughs> oh no. I bought like 20 copies. So. <laughs> I'm flattered. Yeah. So so, so uh, they read it. Actually, this is a true story. One okay. girl, one family read it and they um the dad told me he brought me his highlighted book where he'd gone through and written all these notes and highlighted. And then his daughter wanted to go to she just loves to travel. And so he had her after reading your book plan out this trip. I think she went to Amsterdam or something. And so she planned out the whole thing, figured out the tickets, the itinerary, the hotel, and the mom just tagged along. And so she, every day the girl was, they were going here, we're going to do this. This is why it's interesting. Let's go do it. And the mom was just participating. And then the girl came back, gave like a whole presentation to her dad about the whole trip. And then they went to the middle school and showed the middle school what she'd done. And so it was like <laughs> this whole life changing for their whole family. Wow, you can't see it, but I have a giant grin on my face right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. So tell me about the families who you work with through the life school. Are these families who are uh, doing competitive college prep? Uh, would their kids otherwise be going to um, you know, competitive public or private schools? Um, kind of, who are you drawing from? Yeah, so I would say it's about have homeschool families and some who are traditional homeschoolers and some who are more unschoolers. Um, and then and then there's, I'm finding that there's a range among unschoolers. So people who use that title, like what exactly that looks like for their family. Oh, yeah. And then, um, and then people who are coming from traditional public school, charter school, private school. Some, and some of the private schools might be like uh, more project-based or um, hands-on or, or mm-hmm. progressive in some way. And so, uh, so there's sort of the two camps, like either they were in a formal school or they were a homeschool slash unschool. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and walk us through a, a typical day at the life school from the student's perspective, how much freedom and autonomy, you know, how self-directed or unschooly do they uh, get to be and how much of, uh, how much of it is scripted or structured? 
Yep. So we have two parcel a day, two, two chunks of three hours. Uh, they get there somewhere between 8.30 and 10, um, just for parents to have like freedom of drop off. And then at 10, we get started. So we do like a morning meeting, kind of like Montessori style of you know, checking in with everybody. How's everything going? So people do shout outs. I want to thank this person for that or something. And then um, go over the schedule for the day. And in the morning time, we do a group project together. So the students will pick a topic that they want to learn about. So it might be like entrepreneurship or dinosaurs or space or um, uh, the election, anything. And then I map out the first two weeks of that session. So our term is six weeks. I'll map out the first two weeks where it's like trips and projects and activities that expose them more to this topic that they wanted to learn about. So that's very like um, teacher directed as far as like I mapped it out. And then the second two weeks they do a design sprint and where they use like the design thinking process to say like, okay, I've learned all these things. How do I take action on it to raise awareness, to help someone or to build something that's related? So if we learn about dinosaurs, do you want to like build a scale dinosaur model? Um, if we learn about entrepreneurship, are we starting a business together? Like, what are we doing? Uh -huh. And then uh, and then the last two weeks we produce a museum. So we take everything that we've learned and then create these like interactive exhibits. So it's sort of like this learning by teaching where you have to say like, we're not just gonna stand up and do presentations, we're going to like create in some immersive experience where people come to this event, just like at a museum. You're not there to explain it to them. What are they doing? How are they learning from what you've produced? What are, how, how is it hands on? Yeah, and then um, and then the afternoon is they set individual goals and map out passion projects that they wanna work on. So students are creating video games, writing novels, um, starting businesses, learning, new languages and then they work on that in the afternoon time so we have sort of a, a stand-up from my like tech days where you like really quickly everyone goes around and says what did you get done the day before what do you get done today what are you going to get done today and are you blocked on anything and so we go around can you help someone um what are you working on can you work on this too like really pushing each other and then they work kind of independently during that time or and they work independently Wow, this is a super cool design. Like I've never heard of anything with quite this balance of of elements. I love the split between morning and afternoon. I love the six week session. Uh, how that's that's long enough to learn something about a subject, but it's not too long to get you know bored by it. And um, and the, the balance of kind of teacher directed plus uh, student directed. So. Uh, first of all, this is super cool, Michaela. Congratulations. Thanks. Glad you like <laughs> it. I should say Blake Bull stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to create that. It's going to be an animated gif. <laughs> um, right. And okay, so there's a lot we could talk about, but the focus today is exposure. And I think that this is really appropriate for your school because you combine self-directed student-initiated learning with teachers and facilitators and and something that you're calling a school. You know, lots of organizations like North Star, for example, they purposefully do not want to use the word school because it implies, um, you know, it, it brings with it the school baggage, the, these ideas that mm -hmm. like uh, for a parent, for example, I'm going to drop my kid off here and it is someone else's responsibility to teach them things and inspire them. And it's a sort mm -hmm. of offloading of, of parental responsibility. But you've still chosen to use the word school and you do have some some um, heavier elements of structure here. Um, but, uh, well, so you must be in the position, tell me if I'm wrong, every day of asking yourself, okay, how much should I intervene 
in this student's activities or in their plans? And how much should I step back and just let them do their own thing and learn on their own and learn from their mistakes? Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like you, your answer to this question might be like, sometimes I'm going to intervene a lot and sometimes I'm not going to intervene very much at all. Uh, can you flesh this out for me, kind of your role as an educator here? Yeah. So right now I'm the main one working with students day to day. And, um, and sometimes it's something as simple as like a kid is sick or tired or just, you know, has had a long day. And so, or maybe they just need a five minute break. And so trying to figure out, are they procrastinating or being lazy or are they just, you know, trying to maintain some level of like balance and healthiness. And so trying to figure that out about whether they're on task or not. So that's like always one thing, like, are you on task or not? And like, based on what you said you wanted to get done during this time or what, like we've all agreed that needs to happen during this time. So that's a piece of it. And then the other piece is uh, when they're setting goals or thinking about like how they're going to stretch what they're working on, uh, trying to figure out how much stretch that person can handle based on where they are right now. So some people will say like, okay, if you're, say learning video games right now, right? Like that could go any number of directions. And so for some students, it'll be like, I'm gonna make my first video game and then I'm gonna make another game just like that, right? And then other people might say, I'm gonna make this game and then I'm gonna make a much bigger one and map it all out and then I'm gonna publish it. And so that's a pretty big next step. And so figuring out for that particular student, what makes sense as a next step um, based on how comfortable they feel with what they've done so far and how much more challenge they're willing to take on um, is always a challenge. It's always a conversation, but sometimes some students are uh, not always willing to do something that's a little scary to say like, you wait, you want me to put my work out in the world? Mm. Yeah, I have a student who's interested in music and loves to create music for himself, but doesn't necessarily want to publish his work, right? Like when you think about, oh, you're interested in music, like let's get on SoundCloud, let's get on YouTube. But, I mean, that's a really public audience and it's out there potentially forever. And so for that student, maybe the next step isn't to publish his work. Maybe the next step is to then to work with uh, a mentor and to publish work through some like indirect means or to just mm -hmm. develop his skill and more prof professionalize it a bit, you know, and kind of figuring out where are they as far as like their growth mindset or their like willingness to take on challenges, how they um, feel about failure and, and, and trying new things and then what makes sense for how they view the work that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. If you are very self-conscious about sharing your work or your music, you know, instead of jumping from an audience of zero to an audience of 1 million, jump from an audience of zero to an audience of one or two first. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like your task is to suss out the level of readiness and motivation uh, for kind of pushing them to the next step. And uh, how big is your school? How, how big is your enrollment this year, Michaela? Yeah, so this is our first year. We have four students, four brave families who jumped in with us. And then next year, we're hoping to get to about 15 or 20 and then grow to about 150 or so. Great. And so you, you obviously have a very small teacher-to-student ratio right now. And I imagine <laughs> right. that you're, you're hoping to keep it fairly small as you scale up so that you can continue to provide it, you know, because for someone to understand a student to, to this level of detail, like, 
kind of their anxieties about sharing the, the work that they're producing, you really need a close relationship with them. And, and so what's your ideal teacher to student ratio as you continue to grow? Yeah, I think it's about like 10 to 15 to one. So I think what's nice is that we don't need like a teacher for every single subject. What, because everything is so interdisciplinary, right? The group projects together as a group, you're doing your math and science and history and all of that through this interesting topic. And then you're working on your own individual projects in the afternoon and there are tons of resources thanks to the internet and all the kind people online, right? So there are a ton of resources there. Um, but then the teacher's guide is more of this like coach facilitator role um, and, and trying to find these like Renaissance people who can maybe cover a lot of different topics or support students that learn a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't need a per an expert in each year. So if we have a group of 20 kids, maybe 30 kids, and then have two co-teachers for that crew, I think that's the whole. I look forward to seeing the, the Craigslist job ad for Renaissance <laughs> teacher. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so when parents, uh, and I know you have a, a lot of different types of families and parents um, who are interested in your school, but to what extent do parents uh, expect you to expose their kids to new and different subjects? How much of that is your responsibility? Hmm. Say a, a fair amount. I think there, there's definitely even among homeschool families the idea that like if I'm sending my kid to you, you're going to cover their education as like um, holistically as possible. Hmm. Um, and so... So even to some extent, there's still this idea that like um, things like going to the park or museums are nice, but they're not as great if they're not writing essays about it or if they're not doing some sort of like mathematical analysis mm. about it. Things that um, still look like school. Mm -hmm, exactly. And so finding that balance, especially in high school, because it there's just a lot of pressure around like this is this is it before they're out in the world. So there's that, a lot of that, I think, from parents, even though they appreciate, you know, the holistic approach, trying to find that, that balance for every student. So they are learning new things and growing and stretching academically. Mm -hmm. um, it's still very much a, a priority for parents. Mm -hmm. And so let's take, you know, one of the trickiest subjects to try to, you know, encourage young people to fall in love with, which is math. And mm -hmm. if you have parents who are expecting, you know, they realize this is a progressive school, it's interest-centered, uh, but they still want their kid to do some math because that feels mm -hmm. feels safe and important. Um, and it's definitely part of the, the college prep equation. Um, but you have a kid who's not really that into math. And they're at this school and they're like, I just want to make videos that's all I want right. to do. Like, please don't force me to do algebra like they were doing at my other school. Um, how do you balance that? And how do you finesse uh, How do you finesse this kid into considering math without totally crushing their, their motivation to do what they love, which is videos? Yeah, so I think there are a number of parts to that. So first is just a student transition. So if you're coming from a traditional school, coming into a non-traditional space, I try to convince families uh, who are making that transition that like the first couple of terms, like maybe the first semester can just be this transition of do what you're excited about and like fall in love with learning again. And then we'll like, figure out all those other things in the spring um, that 
if you miss two or three months of doing algebra, that your life will probably go on and that you won't fall horribly behind, whatever <laughs> behind is. And are you convincing the parents or the student more of that fact that, you know, if you don't keep uh, doing no, algebra, this, is it the, the parents? are like, oh, yeah, no, algebra, great. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was <laughs> thinking that might be the case. <laughs> so yeah, you're doing a lot of parents. parent education and a lot of parent handholding. Yeah, a lot of conversations about, um, you know, the parents had a very, if they had a very traditional uh, high school experience or schooling experience, now wanting something different and beginning to see the value, but still being like, all I know is that my kids should come home with huge textbooks and lots of homework mm-hmm. and they're not, you know, and how do, how do I deal with it? How do I support my kid? How do I know that they're learning? So we do a lot of like other forms of assessment. So the museum that we produce is one way for families to see like your kid has, your kid and all the other kids have learned a ton of things um, and you get to learn it with them if at no other time before. Um, so we send weekly emails to say like, these are things that we did this week. These are things that we learned. Here are some of the films or videos or links. And then um, and we do conferences at the end of every six week term so that the students present like, this is what I accomplished. This is what I learned. And this is what I'm, I'm planning to work on in the next six weeks so uh-huh. that families can have a discussion and kind of check in. You know, so there are these constant conversations about like, what's my kid doing? If they're not bringing home hours of homework, you know, are they, are they learning? It's like, well, yes, we had this conversation. You got this email, you went to this event, you know, that there are other ways for them to, to feel a little bit more confident that their kid's making progress Uh Um, and to see that they're making progress beyond the academics, that they're making progress as people that like now they're able to stand up and present something in a way that they couldn't before that they're standing confidently, that they're presenting ideas that are their own, um, you know, that they've had conversations and done things that there wouldn't have been space to do at a traditional school. And they, they probably, their kid maybe wouldn't have tried to do at a traditional school. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I'm a believer for sure. All those interpersonal <laughs> right. skills. Uh, so yeah. returning to the thought experiment of the kid who loves videos, just wants to do that. Mm. But you sort of have this obligation to help expose them to other subjects also. Um, so you have this de-schooling period in the beginning where you're like, listen, just take it easy. Like, remember why learning is awesome again, and then we'll come back to the math thing. So let's say it's a semester later, and uh, they've gotten into the rhythm of going to the life school. Um, what's your approach as an educator now uh, when they are just you know, really into videos and you're trying to, to nudge them into exploring other areas like math? Yeah, so – depending on the student, but so far the biggest focus of math has been around finances. So, and, and that's a part of adolescent development. It's like wanting that financial independence to say, mm-hmm. hey, this is my money. If I want to get a car, I want to go on this trip, buy this snack, like I have the money to do that. I don't need to ask mom or dad. And so pushing students in that space has been a, a really nice like first step. So talking about like, this is how we use, you could use Excel to set up a budget. You could play the stock market game or set up a real stock portfolio and really grow your money. You could get a job. (laughs) You could get a job and make some money or you could write a book or create videos that then um, generate income, generate revenue for you and thinking about math from that perspective. And also we have a lot of conversation about like what math is, that it doesn't need to be this thing that you do apart from everything else. It doesn't have to be disconnected from your interests and passions, that there's a lot of math that we use every day that run our world. And there's math that um, that you can do right now that is interesting and applied in a way that might matter to you more than like abstract algebraic formulas. Yeah, I uh, had to, you know, 
tear apart a polynomial just last week. Uh, A guy walked up to me on the street and said, hey, solve this equation. And I was like, thank (laughs) God somebody forced me to do algebra when I was a kid. Um, That definitely didn't happen. You are correct. Um, (laughs) So it sounds like what you're saying is that you don't necessarily try to take any interest that a student has and then find a way to connect that to uh, another area like math. But you just start with something that is already of interest to virtually all adolescents and teenagers, which is like financial independence and, uh, you know, learning how money works. And you just roll with that and you say, hey, do you want to have a car when you turn 17? They're like, yes, I do want to have a car. You're like, do you have any money for that? Do you have any idea how how this works? And they say no. And then you say, well, why not? And and then you you have a reason. You have a very clear palatable reason for a young person to start learning mathematical concepts. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what's nice is that you can kind of build the complexity around the financial piece and that you earn credit for. So one of our high school math credits is around financial literacy. Um, and so they're not just doing it for their own sort of enjoyment, which is nice too, but that they that you also get high school credit for. So for people where that matters, it's like, well, am I going to get anything for this? It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, you do. Um, And then we can uh, make it more complex. So you start just with, can I get a job? How much money can I earn? Making cool videos on YouTube. Uh, And then we're thinking, well, can we get into some projections and some like mathematical modeling of how much money you can make over time or how much money you can make either from selling YouTube videos or, or getting lots of views or from growing your stocks and looking at how different companies are performing, how much how many shares should you try to buy and how much mm-hmm. money could you get from that? And like really doing all this like um, more complex thinking. And then it sort of gets into over time, uh, you're getting into things like exponentials and logs and functions because you, you need to create these models that allow you to do these projections. Uh-huh. Got it. Okay. So in this example, you are kind of pivoting off of the kid's pre-existing interest in video and saying, hey, you know, people make a living by producing videos and putting them on, on YouTube. And then you you get into the financial and the math stuff from there. So uh, it sounds like you're taking both approaches, both like just related to teenagers being teenagers and then trying to find ways to connect different subjects to pre-existing interests. Well, yeah, so I guess you, you end up by matter of necessity, right? So we don't just learn algebra, geometry, or trigger, whatever, because someone told us to, someone decided that those might be interesting because on some level they add value to our lives. So thinking about like, what about algebra is super useful. And that piece is the modeling that as a teenager, you could make a ton of money selling video. I mean, getting lots of views on YouTube videos or Instagram photos or where people do all the time. A lot of teenagers do right now. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, but how do you figure out like, what are the thresholds for making that money? And what does it take to get that? Are there certain times of the day that you post? Are there certain time lengths of time and really getting into um, the mathematical arguments and the science, not because we want to cover subjects, but because it makes you more money. Um, And if you can make those models and really think thoughtfully about it, you can figure out how to make more money, how to, what is the smart choice for the car you want to buy and how you're going to save toward it? Should you get this job or that job? Um, that those decisions are real life decisions that you genuinely want to make and that you could make them better uh, if you had some of these mathematical tools. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in my experience, teenagers are pretty sharp when it comes to uh, detecting when they're being manipulated. And that's a big, <laughs> a big reason why teenagers are pretty skeptical of a lot of high school teachers is because they're like, you just want me to do a good job on this Common Core test. You know, I am a means to an end here. Um, even, you know, if the teacher is super caring and thoughtful about the way that they teach. So I'm curious if you've run into any situations where you're like, hey, you love video, you know, and you start saying like, well, you know, people make money on YouTube and and here's the math behind it. And the kid at some point just says like, wait, stop, like, stop trying to get me to learn math. I know what you're trying to do. They do this in school. And I came here because I don't want to be manipulated like this. Uh, have you had moments like that? And if so, how do you respond to them? No, I mean, I think part of it is creating this culture of like being curious uh, and pushing your learning and thoughtfulness. And so, for example, so one student is creating this series of basketball tournaments um, so that people can come out, play some three on three ball, have some fun, but he can also make some money. And so and this is like a, a over several month process. Right. So we're not in our first conversation saying, like, think about these mathematical models. Right. So our first conversations around this basketball tournament were um, how long do you need to reserve the gym for? So we're using math that the student really needs to figure out this basketball tournament. And a lot of this math you can just do by hand, but he does need to figure it out. And so that's just like one conversation. We try to do some of the, they're not even really calculations. They're just like a chart on the board, but there's mathematical thinking that's happening, whether he's like totally aware of it or not. And then later we have a conversation about like, well, what's your budget? How are you figuring out all your expenses? And how do you figure out how many staff you need, right? And so over time, the conversations get more complex. And he's like, oh my gosh, there's so many things to manage in this budget. I keep having a change thing. I said, well, hey, let me show you Excel. This spreadsheet thing is actually really useful kind of figuring these things out. And then like over time, you know, it gets more complex. Um, and then part of the value of our group project in the morning is that we're able to, that I'm able to create more authentic scenarios where these kinds of things come up. So um, in the next term, we're going to learn about entrepreneurship. And so there we're going to do, we're just going to go over some financial projections for the school and they're going to help me figure out like, well, how do we scale from four kids to a hundred kids? What would it take? <laughs> I love it. When do we need, right. When do we need to get a loan? When do we need to move? How many like, kids can this space have? Right. So like asking real questions where we're like, if you guys want to grow, you want more kids around here, you know, what would it really take to do that? And going through all the math and spreadsheets and everything together. I, I I love that you will involve them in the actual financial projections and planning of the school itself. And because it's like, it does not get more relevant than that. It's like, do you want the school to be around next year? Yeah. Okay. Help me figure this out. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think with the projects too, like if we're looking at dinosaurs or some social justice issue, then there's a lot of data to analyze. I mean, there's just so many places where um, math comes in and in a more contextual, authentic way and not in a uh -huh. way, hopefully, that feels forced and that sort of develops them over time. It sounds to me like you put in serious time and effort to build rapport with the students in the beginning and to just work on the, the practical day-to-day -day concerns behind their projects. And, and down the road... Uh, when these projects become more complex and almost invariable, invariably require some sort of math, then you have this trust with the student already. They know that you're not a snake oil salesman just trying to kind of shove 
regular academic concepts down their throat, but uh, you know, with a nice sugar-coated pill. That you're here because you want to help support them, uh, but also you want them to see that you know there are actual tools out there like Excel or understanding how a formula works in Excel that are mathematical, but that are also genuinely relevant to their interests and their problems. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then we also, so that's more of like the applied piece. And then we do more of the theoretical piece of at least more of an artistic kind of thing. So we'll do math art projects where it's just like, we're making something beautiful and it happens to use shapes or it happens to use like a compass that you would use in geometry, but we're making something that looks nice that you could frame on your wall if you wanted to, um, and kind of trying to make math less scary and more, more interesting. And is the idea that as math becomes more scary, excuse me, less scary, more interesting. Less scary. Less yeah. scary. That, you know, I assume that not all roads end in in Algebra 2. Uh, you know, there's not a way to, to connect every single different interest in the world to a very formal academic subject. And so it's the idea that as you stop stigmatizing a subject like math, that when it comes down to like SAT prep time, and it's like, oh, we need to review these really formal concepts in math that are not going to be connected to your interests. Is the idea that there's not going to be this like knee-jerk reaction to math and, and studying because they have some sort of genuine connection and familiarity with mathematical concepts? Yeah, we just had that conversation yesterday, actually. We took a practice PSAT, um, and the students were kind of upset like why were these problems on here they made no sense um they were just about really odd bizarre you know like standard standardized exams kind yeah. of question and so um so we had a conversation of there there's math that you need to sort of play this game of psat set and you study for that in particular um just like you study for um i, I, I can't think of any other examples but it's like it's just a particular type of thing that you're trying to do, and so you study for that to to play that game and win there. And when you're yeah. trying to do math for business or you're trying to do math for engineering or art or video games, you know you do different kinds of math. And so this is just its own thing. And so they yeah. they were comfortable with that, you know, separation. I love that phrasing of thinking of it as a particular type of game, just a one-off challenge. It's like, okay, the challenge of this week is figure out how to get a good score in the SAT or the PSAT. And if you're not, I feel like if you're in regular school and you're just having all these different traditional subjects uh, forced upon you for seven hours a day, five days a week for year after year, you no longer can look at it like a game very easily. It's just your life. It's your job. It's your full-time right. job. Uh, whereas something, you know, if, if you're in a more supportive environment like your school where you actually get to pursue your interests and then every once in a while there's this hurdle that you need to jump over, which is some sort of traditional academic hurdle, then you you have the, the freedom to look at it as a game because you know it's temporary. You know it's not your life for, uh, for the rest of the year or the, the upcoming years. Uh, does that sound like it? that's how it works for your students? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of, of freedom in that. You're just going to figure out this one thing, and then you're going to go back to doing other things that you're more interested in. Mm -hmm. What about um, – I'm going to come back to the sort of stereotypical example of a kid who only wants to do one thing, and 
let's say instead of doing video, it's it's video games, which is the the number one interest of a lot of young people who can kind of stop right. doing traditional education. Um, if I'm a parent and I want my kid to be exposed to totally new subjects that are that are not even in the terrain of video games, you know, like my kid knows nothing about history, they know nothing about literature. Um, how how do you tackle that? Uh, that challenge and that responsibility? Yeah. So part of it is that we look at a student's life or what they might work on as far as their like individual goal work time as not just their interests, but, you know, sort of their like life goal. So some students have fitness as a goal, other students have like money management as a goal. And so they have these other things that they're working on. So it's not just like video games all afternoon or like making sure. video games all afternoon. But we do make that switch for students of saying like, okay, you, you enjoy playing games. Now let's think about making them. And so there are a number of different platforms uh, where students can work on making video games. And so that's some sort of like initial choice of like the kind of game that you wanna make. Is it a 2D game? Is it a 3D game? Is it more about a story or is it more about the um, the characters in the setting and then trying to figure out which platform makes the most sense. And so there's just a ton of like trying things out that happens there. And then, uh, and then it's like, oh, well, how do you actually make the games? And then how do you create the story? Like, is this a fun game? Do other people want to play it? Or are they just sort of being nice because they're your friend or they're your parent? <laughs> and so how do you, yeah. how do you make it so that it's actually fun and enjoyable? And so there's a ton of like, reading that happens there around just like, well, what makes games fun? Why do people play these other games? What is the psychology behind these other games? There's even like, there's a lot of theory around fun and games. And so, um, yeah, so you can go that route. So just reading articles about games, also getting into the gaming industry. Uh, what are the tech companies or game design companies around here, around your area? Um, so going to talk to those people, not really pushes a student to say, oh, I need to send an email. Oh, boy. Um, and I need to like plan a time to talk to them. Like, well, what do I wear? How professional do I need to be? What do I ask them? How do I ask questions? And, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, and then students can get into like the narrative design. And so that gets into well, um, starting with just like taking a novel, reading that novel or story, and then converting that into a game. And so you have mm -hmm. to read the novel fairly closely in order to figure out how to translate it. Because once students make like their first game or two, they generally run out of ideas. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that, was, that was fun. But now what do I make a game about? Um, and so will novel or a short story or a poem or a movie even are good places to start. And that's where a lot of games come from, right? Like they make the movie and now they make the Toy Story movie and now they want a Toy Story game, right? That's true. That's true. So that it, it, sounds to me like, it sounds to me like the, the fundamental idea at the life school is that everything is connected to everything else. You know, it's this Absolutely. idea that, that all learning is interdisciplinary learning. There's really no knowledge. There's no realm of human endeavor that sits in a vacuum untouched by any other realms. And uh, it sounds like you are using your personal depth of knowledge and your enthusiasm to, uh, to help connect students to these realms that they might not otherwise know exists um, if not for – you know, you kind of actively pushing them and 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 showing them what's possible. Uh, this this sounds like you're a major value add here, Michaela. Uh, 
this is this <laughs> perhaps. Your, your prime your primary role at the school? Uh yeah. Aside so from this being is founder my... and CEO and and all the other janitor too. Right. So right. No, so the kids do most of the cleaning, thankfully. We talked a lot about nice. having ownership. Yeah. Um, so when you cook those noodles in the microwave, clean it out after that'd be great. Um and so, but we, but we have a team of people who work on other things around like finance, marketing, operations, fundraising, these different things um, and, and curriculum. And so what's been really great is that one, when students say, I want to study entrepreneurship, I want to study dinosaurs, then all this crowd of people says like, well, think about this and you guys should do this and you should go here and you should try this activity. And so they, we crowdsource all these ideas among our team. Um, and so it's not just necessarily me coming up with ideas because, I mean, there's some there's certainly a limit to the interesting level of interesting things I could come up with. Um, and then but then we also do the same thing for students. And so I'll say like I was talking to my dad the other day and I was like, I have this student who's interesting and in, interested in like music and woodworking. And he was like, well, how do those relate together? And I was like, well, I think they're both like creative. And he's like, oh, has he thought about how you build instruments like those are devices? Um, and that they don't need to be these two separate things. And I was like, that's really interesting. I never thought of that, <laughs> you know? And so then I found this place actually in Georgia that has like a four week residential program or something where you can go and learn how to build and repair instruments. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So there's a yeah. lot of that like crowdsourcing, cross pollinating of ideas around group projects, and individual student interests and things like that. If you have homeschoolers and unschoolers um, thinking about coming to the school or attending right now, what is it you do you think is driving them to join the school? What is it that homeschooling or unschooling on its own and in, in the family environment um, perhaps can't provide super well that a school like yours can provide? Well, I think when kids get to high school, they're kind of itching to get out into the world and they know they're not quite adults yet, but they want a lot more freedom and independence and things like that. And so um, I think it's also a good point of transition for families too to be like, pretty soon my kid's going to be, you know, around all sorts of people of all different ideas and backgrounds, and I'm not going to have as much day-to-day um, say in their life. And so how do we sort of facilitate this process? of them transitioning into adulthood. And so we, I think it's a, a nice opportunity um, for families to say, I'm going to give my kid to someone else for a few years. I'm still going to be there. I'm still going to be active and participate and know what's going on and have conversations and follow up with them. Um, but I want them to begin to be able to stand on their own to whether that's like taking the bus to school or Ubering or um, just being around other people who have different ideas about the world and having to defend, you know, our, what we believe at home and, and really mm -hmm. pushing, you know, their own independence, but without, you know, throwing them into the deep end just yet. Yeah. I just want to go back to something. Do you, are there kids who Uber to and from school each day? Does this exist? <laughs> There are definitely kids who do that. Um, I definitely tutor some boys who would Uber there and back. Right now, more we have like more of the bus martyr, the metro crowd, crowd more so. Yeah, yeah. That sounds terribly expensive. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I just never thought of that before. Okay. Um, all right. And on the other side of things, the parents and families coming from more traditional college prep backgrounds who, you know, for one reason or another, school traditional school is not working for their kids. So they come to you. What kind of challenges are you facing serving that demographic? And 
Uh, what are the big pushback points? Well, I think sort of the de-schooling period that we talked about, like their kid is there here all day, every day and working through that mental transition of what does it mean to have ownership over my education? But their parents aren't necessarily here every day making that transition. And so working with both the parents and the students to say, like, if you want them to go to college, they, can, they will absolutely have that option. Um, but the path to get there will be really different. And let's talk about like what that path looks like. So we recently like share with each family, um, each student's individual learning plan. So like given what we've seen in the, this last couple months of the student's interests, how might that flesh be fleshed out um, over the course of the year to cover lots of different subjects and earn some of this high school credit and make some significant progress towards uh, being ready for college and having that as an option. And so that's really helpful for traditional parents, I think, in, in particular, because they're like, okay, now I can better imagine how my kid goes from making video games all day or, or producing music beats to like a math credit or an art credit or something, um, reading English credit. So giving them more information and, um, having just tons of conversations and then also giving them more resources. So I think, and I, I think the XQ challenge was actually really helpful. Um, to ex explain to, that for, for those who don't know what it is. Yeah. So XQ challenge, uh, Steve jobs, widow, Lorene jobs created this, I guess it was a million dollars or $10 million for each of three or four high schools that could come up with, a new model for high school. So the idea that high school hasn't changed in years, that it's not working, that kids aren't engaged, that um, they're getting really stressed out and not being prepared for the world for the rest of their lives. And so clearly we need a new model. High school's right for innovation. And so thousands of people all over the country applied and um, and they did a lot, a big push all over the country to, to get people to understand that there's this need for changing the high school model. And so I think a lot more people are aware um, and plus like most likely to succeed the film about um, high tech high, big project based learning um, network and then race to nowhere about how high stressful high school is like all these different films and programs campaigns have begun to bring more to the forefront, um, the need to do something different in high school. And so I think traditional more and more traditional parents are like, I get that there's a need. And then that, but then there's like the day to day of like, my kid having three hours to kind of do his own thing, is that gonna fill that need? Um, mm -hmm. Working with them to understand how that works uh, is part of the, the transition for parents as well. Uh -huh. All right, Michaela, I wanna wrap up with a personal question, uh, still related to exposure. Uh, you are, you must be incredibly busy, you know, starting to school, running to school, thinking about how to grow this school, but how do you, yourself continue to expose yourself to new areas of knowledge, new skills you might want to learn? How do you continue your own journey as a self-directed learner? Yeah, well, one thing is networking. I love going to events and meeting people who are working on all sorts of different projects. Plus, it's just like being around adults, which is always nice after being with kids all day. Um, so uh -huh. I like that. And then when the kids pick project topics, I might know some things about it, but I don't necessarily know everything. And so when people are, we do this crowdsourcing among our team of different ideas, and I'm like, well, you should watch this documentary, you should go to this place. I have to go and learn about those things and watch those documentaries and think about these things. And I've started to 
just like pour over all of the Netflix documentaries and build a YouTube channel, like master playlist, of oh. just interesting things that students could use if, you know, if they wanted to be, in, if they were interested in this thing or that thing and just kind of having those things ready, you know, to say like, oh, you want to do this? Here's this great thing you should check out, you know, and just having those things ready. I guess that's a really awesome opportunity for you to be surrounded by these students who are looking into all these diverse interests. And then your self-assigned job is to help them explore and expand those interests and connect them to others. And so you've sort of written self-directed learning into your own life curriculum just by running the school. Yeah, so I'm excited for that for teachers as well. Because I feel like when you're a teacher, you just sort of teach the same thing over and over again every year. But with our school teachers we'll never get bored because they always have to stay on their toes, you know, and learn new things, learn from one another, learn from the students. Yeah. That's a huge plus for becoming an educator in a school like yours. Um, Michaela, how can people find out more about the life school if they are so interested? Yes, they can go to our website, thelifeschool.co. And there's a ton of information on there as well as a form if they wanted to reach out to connect our partner or to uh, apply, just get more information. There's a form there to connect with me. And right now you are day school offering enrollment to kids in the Atlanta area. Um, any, is there any way that somebody from outside of the area can get involved right now or maybe in the future? So if they wanted to, if they were an organization or an adult who wanted to, to work with students on something in particular, or just wanted to contribute in some way, that's absolutely possible. We've done Skype calls with um, grad students at Stanford and, and Skype calls with, you know, writing tutors who were wanted to work with the kids on some project or something. So things like that are definitely possible. The internet's amazing. Um, Emma, we're, I think we're working out over the next few years to have, be able to have remote students so that a student Whoa. could work through our process and do their own thing from from one of your adventures, wherever they are in the world. <laughs> I, I hope that they would not be Skyping into your school while they're going on an adventure with me, but uh, <laughs> you know, maybe after the adventure. Nope. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they, yeah, they can maybe, they could get credit which I'm excited about. Like they could get some of their high school credit by going on one of those adventures and, and documenting oh, some of the process I like or it. something. Yeah. I yeah. like it. I would support that for sure. Okay. Mikhail, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this ad-free podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can write a review on iTunes. You can share it on social media. You can email it to someone who might benefit from it. Or you can support it directly with a per-episode donation at offtraillearning.com slash support.